Welcome to Everyday Therapist. I'm Rich from the UK. And I'm Cody from the United States. Before we jump in, we just want to say that this podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice. Well, welcome to another episode of Everyday Therapist. I appreciate everybody continuing to listen to us. Today is a little bit different. We are recording uh, a different day than we usually do. Rich and I have, have started our week, and so... Uh, Rich, I'll ask you this time. How I mean, how was your weekend? Rather than how is how was your week? Tell me about your weekend. Oh, yeah, I didn't consider I didn't consider that question. I'd literally forgotten about my weekend. <laughs> I can't remember anything about. Oh, I know one thing because obviously all our listeners, I'm sure they're desperate to hear about my decorating stories, which I've been talking about the last couple of weeks. So I finally finished decorating my daughter's bedroom. And put all the furniture back in, thrown everything back into the room, and now it's just back to being a whole heap of junk. But at least the walls are painted, and uh, so I'm moving on from that. How about, how about you? How was your weekend? Yeah, my weekend was uh, pretty slow, actually. For We usually have a fair amount of things going on the weekend, but for whatever reason, uh, this weekend had literally nothing planned, which was interesting, and I... As if I didn't know this already, I've learned that um, that's not a good weekend for me. Oh, I can't just oh, I can't just sit around and do nothing. I, I at least need something to break up my day here and there. So uh, no, I thought you were going to tell me that it was amazing that you had nothing planned and and it actually just fixed you. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. All my problems are have been solved by sitting yeah. on the couch all weekend, and that was that was nice, but. It sounds better than what it is, I think, for me in terms of like, oh, a weekend where nothing's planned. Like, that sounds really good. But at the end of the day, a couple hours into it, I get fairly antsy. Like, let's yeah. just go somewhere. Let's just do something. The weather here doesn't help, though. It's been it's been snowy and rainy and, I don't know, like 30 degrees every day and just cloudy and, and gloomy. So that, that doesn't necessarily help either. But uh, we're through yeah. that and uh, and we started our week. So things are okay. Good stuff. So yeah. 30 degrees to me and Sarah, who's waiting in the wings, ah. ready to come on, is our guest today, is it's, it's hot. <laughs> it is hot. It's minus five here. Yeah, it's been extremely cold yeah. and wet and miserable, but I guess we're on degrees C and you're on Fahrenheit. Yeah, so roughly zero-ish, I guess, for you um, guys then at that point. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know exactly what the con- conversion is, but somewhere around there. Something like cold and wet and miserable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty Which close. Which is to our that. life. We're in the north of England. Oh, oh my Dreary, rat, wet, like that's summer. That's our right. summer. Yeah. So, uh, without further ado, then I should I should introduce Sarah. So our listeners will be uh, pleased to hear that it's not just me and Cody rambling on this week. We've actually got Sarah Reese from Therapist Corner, um, and I've known Sarah for maybe three or four months, perhaps. Yeah. Like yeah. That. Time flies because I feel like we've just got to know each other a little bit. And I met Sarah through, I mean, we'll probably get into this a little bit more later on, but we actually made contact uh, from through your podcast, which is, um, I've forgotten the name. You'll have to As the Therapist. You got yeah. it on notes here. Mm-hmm. Therapist. So that was something that I was listening to for a while. And then we made contact. And um, I'll just let you introduce yourself, Sarah. 
Well, thank you for having me on. It's a real delight because I've been following your Substack and your podcast and it's a it's a real privilege. And it's really nice that to see the faces behind Substack. And yeah. obviously we know each other, but it's first time meeting Cody and it's it's exciting to have more therapists on Substack because we're we're slowly infiltrating, aren't we? Yeah. Which is brilliant. So I'm Sarah Reese. Um my background is in mental health nursing and um I'm a CBT therapist, but I'm also trained in a few other modalities. And I work in private practice, um, and I have done for over 10 years. And I run a clinic in Wilmslow in Cheshire, which is the north of England. Um, so I've got um, a practice there with um, about three rooms. There's a few other therapists that work with me. So I see clients three days a week and then two days a week because I work for myself, I can do lots of interesting things. So I do podcasts and blogs and just been writing a book that will be out next year. I've just handed it in. What? So I do a lots lot, of, lot of things going on. And, and just to backtrack a little bit, if you don't. If you, yeah, uh, sure. Context. So I believe, and, and tell me if I've got this wrong, that you were a mental health nurse about yeah. 10 or 15 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, a long time ago. So I'm still a registered mental health nurse. That's how I started my career. Yeah. Why did you used to become, we were, a, a, I don't know about nursing, we were a regular nurse first and then you went into mental I health. I wasn't a real nurse first. Not a real yeah. nurse. <laughs> Not a real nurse, that's what they, <laughs> they say about us. Uh, Sarah, I'm curious, can you yeah. can you help us understand what uh, what is a mental health nurse? So um, a mental health nurse is somebody at the time when I trained, we had to do 18 months of kind of general training in general nursing. And then you specialize in just the mental health and psychology and that side of things. So um, I did 18 months kind of generic nursing that everybody did and then um, specialised into mental health nursing. And I kind of got into that because it, it was in the 90s and um, something called Care in the Community just happened in England where we closed down all the big psychiatric hospitals and um, institutions. And I was part of uh, what was Care in the Community, bringing people out of those big hospitals into the community and that's how i became interested in kind of mental health yeah so mm-hmm. i mean did you have an interest in in psychology and and, and things like that well i'm guessing you must have done if mm-hmm. you were if you were seeking a career in mental health nursing what what I, was how did you get into it i think I, i've always had an interest in working with people i think people have always fascinated me and um, I suppose it's a little bit shallow, but at the time I left home quite early and um, I I suppose I had a tricky kind of teenage years. I lost my dad quite tragically and my mum met somebody else. So I left home quite young and it was literally the only thing because I had no funding to go to university. It was the only thing that I could do that would kind of give me a career and kind of pay me a bit of a salary as well, okay. uh, which they've changed now, which is a real shame. Now you have to go in at degree level mm. and, you know, and it's such a practical thing and people's skills should be, I feel, the main focus now. It's got a lot more academic so so, but I think underneath that I had an interest in people I'm nosy like every good therapist (laughs) yeah we have we have a bit of a sadistic side that we like to kind of kind of hear uh, about some things and feel like that we can be a part of that for sure yeah yeah definitely yeah how long did you do the the nursing for then and and what was the transition what made you start thinking that you would like a career in 
counselling and psychotherapy? Well, I'd, um, I initially worked on uh, quite a number of the hospital wards um, in Manchester and uh, a forensic unit at Presswich and um, and in in intensive care units and so and all the acute units and elderly. I did all the kind of hospital settings, most of them anyway. And then I moved into the community. I was a community psychiatric nurse and I absolutely loved doing that. And I did it for about six, seven years. And at the time, my caseload was, I'd see about 18 people and they would range from teenagers to elderly. So I'd see the whole spectrum of cases and then they changed the service so that um, there was young people service, adult services and changed the model. So it was all about kind of getting people to recovery and out. And I um, I did my counselling, person's end of counselling, level one, level two. I think I might have done level three, but I didn't do level four. Um, and then I did a gr- I became started to become interested in kind of recovery and psychology rather than the medical model just felt to me like it was a one size fits all and i worked with people that had lots of side effects from this medication i just felt like there needed to be another way you know Mm -hmm. i used to go around um quite deprived areas in manchester giving depot injections which is nice psychotic and people were had tremors and very overweight and really poor quality of life and it just felt like there's got to be more than there um, yeah, it reminds me of something I read today, actually, and I've been told to read this magazine called Therapy Today. Um, oh yes, college, and uh, so I've been told to read through it and then and then talk to my class about it on on Thursday. There was an article in it about um, antidepressants, and it said something along the lines of forty seven percent of people who are on antidepressants have negative side effects. Mm. And that yeah. was that was a bit of a, a shocking statistic for me, and it and it listed out some of the terrible things that that people experience. And I thought, you know, there, there must be a better way. I, I know I'm somebody that had antidepressants when I was younger, and I had some very strange mm. effects. And sorry, we've already gone off on a tangent here. No, it's okay. One of my absolute. It was quite a funny side effect in in some ways. Um, if I was walking down the street, sometimes like my body or another part of me or my soul used to go off and walk off in the other direction. And then as soon as I became aware of it, it snapped back into my body. And it was something, uh, it was a bit. I've heard of that before. It, it was crazy. And I yeah. would, so not only was I suffering from depression and I was taking these tablets and things, suddenly there was almost like a sort of visual almost hallucinogenic element to it you know yeah. which like a I've, disassociation like a disassociation which yeah. made me you know I, I don't think it did bother me that much actually but it wasn't the greatest um, <laughs> it wasn't the greatest thing to happen so yeah I, I think medication obviously it's it's amazing in the in the right context but it sounds like you were thinking that there was, there was more uh, the, I was seeing the the rough end of it. I think I, you know, I've seen lots of people do really well with medication. I'm a, quite an advocate for it, but I think that we're complicated, aren't we? And there has to be yeah. lots of avenues and lots of things. So I became interested. I get, got frustrated with the NHS. So I went into management. I was dreadful manager. Really hated it. I was like, I'm going to change the NHS. Yeah, I was really 
didn't do well and all these budget it was all i i thought if i could get high enough then i'd get into these meetings with the commissioners and be like you know more money needs to go here but it, it was all there was no money and mm. it was so so I, I dropped it back down into be a clinician being a clinician again let, let me just jump in real quick and just be, yeah. just so because we have a few people in america listening to so nhs yeah. is basically your oh there's there's my cat. I don't know if you, you can see oh, her. Oh, I can see oh. a little tail. <laughs> uh, the NHS is is basically the the public uh, health service um, yeah. over, over there uh, that a lot of people can go to 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 access medical and, and mental health needs uh, of, of sorts, right? So we don't have, we don't have that here uh, or anybody. So I just wanted to explain uh, what that was like for for anybody else. So the public yeah. health system. Yeah. Yeah, we have mentioned it a couple of times, I think, but it's uh, yeah. the NHS is, and I always say this, we don't want to get political and things, but it is, I think Sarah might agree that it's... It's an absolute crisis, yeah, it's probably, we won't have it for long. It's, yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, I think it's, they're trying to uh, see it off somehow, but um, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you my first actual question. Okay. Which was, um, <laughs> so when, when you did your training to become a therapist, so my question is, do you think, well, do you think becoming a therapist helped you sort your life out or do you think it made it worse? I don't think it made it worse. <laughs> I, can't, oh. <laughs> I can't say I'm sat here with my life sorted out, unfortunately. <laughs> I think it changes you, doesn't it? It becomes, you know, I think, you know, though it's such an interesting question, I think the, one of the biggest things it's given me, and sometimes I say this to my clients, is the kind of seeing... I kind of have this awareness that we all have a struggle because I see amazing people coming into my through my therapy door every single day and you just think they just look amazing they've really got it going on and then you know and then hear these amazing stories of resilience and strength and and struggles that nobody else knows about and or tricky things that are in their mind and they've just they've been has so much shame they've not shared them in other places and actually we can work through them so and yeah. um, i think it's opened my eyes because i think we all kind of walk around with a mask on thinking oh they look all right it's only me but actually we're all as messed up as each other Yes. Even with lots of training, unless I don't know if you two are sorted. Yeah, well, I'm going to put the same question to Cody and put yeah. him. How are you doing, Cody? <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. I, I love your answer. We we are all um, messed up in our own ways mm -hmm. and we're not really sorted. What, one thing that I always find it interesting is, is a lot of people who we just come in contact with right they they see us as therapists or somebody in the mental health field and do think that we have all of our life put together or <laughs> all of a sudden somehow that makes us not human and 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 more robotic and like emotions don't affect us or life experiences we we can handle with perfection but but no, I mean, just, <laughs> just, just like I said this weekend, like it just the, my, my boredom hits and my, that brings anxiety and, um, just like all sorts of things that we, we still experience. I, I think for me, in some ways coming into this field, um, I would say it's helped me to, mm -hmm. to have skills and tools, but in some ways I think it's also hurt me because I think I've learned more that I didn't know. And now I'm paying more attention to things. In yes, some way, you've got awareness. Yeah. We have awareness of mind. Yeah, in some way, yeah. and then that's what we teach, right? We teach all of our clients awareness of mind. But sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> yeah, and I think as a therapist, I struggle with that sometimes because you can see people's minds opening up and becoming more aware of stuff, and then you have to deal with it. And you think, God, 
they could have <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, carried yeah. on. So I always think now, I, I always imagine that people, and, and I almost see this in the limited bits of listening I've done to people, that there's almost like an unraveling, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's quite it's quite the thing to watch and, and, and listen to. And obviously I'm completely inexperienced, but you feel... Um, I'll share a little story actually when, when I was on holiday uh, down in Dorset last summer uh, we went out for a drink with some family and some extended family because they're, they're from down that way and I started listening to I guess it would be my wife's cousin's wife or something like that I started listening to her and I didn't just jump in talking you know I thought I'm just going to mm. listen to her and oh my goodness within like two minutes she was telling me everything and I was like oh man I need to put the brakes on this somehow it, it was like you know it was I, I almost felt a bit irresponsible and it was just literally by just being quiet and listening to her and asking her a question it was really interesting you know the stuff that she told me but it was like naught to 60 and we don't get that opportunity I'm delighted to be on somebody else's podcast and talk about me it's like so exciting yeah we're all so busy aren't we we're also busy, and it is great. And, and and I know that when we do the listening skills at college, and when it's my turn to, to talk for for ten minutes, it is you know, I mean, it's literally therapeutic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Being able to just speak about what's what's on your mind, and um, so it's a really it's a gift that you can give to somebody, really, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. So anyway, I've got my second question somewhere. Well, really, Sarah, it was, it was about whether there's anything in particular, since you became a therapist, anything in particular that you do to take care of yourself, you know, self-care, and, and whether that's changed since perhaps when you were a nurse and now you're a therapist is, you know, how does that look for you? I think one of the main things that changes when you go from being a nurse, a mental health nurse to a therapist is um, having to have clinical supervision. So, and when you're in the NHS, they're quite interested in um, recovery rates and kind of getting three people through, but in private practice, that kind of changes quite a bit. And it's more seen as there's two people in the therapy room and you start to get more support um, through that, I suppose. And then we're using I was a CBT therapist initially and I don't think I really I think I did some of the stuff I learned I was like oh my god why didn't I learn this at school well around mainly around worry um dealing with worry I think it was it's something that you could teach school children really effectively dealing with panic that anxiety is normal thoughts are not facts it's like what it was just really useful information and then when I hit 40 I became quite physically unwell with had a thyroid condition got diagnosed with celiac and just loads of stuff and um I then started to think uh, well I was going to the GP who was kind of going you know, just take this medication, you'll be fine. I'm feeling awful. So I started thinking, how can I apply everything to myself and started journaling at that point. To, and then I could see the patterns of my mind. And with more awareness, you have more choice. I also had more information to take back to healthcare professionals and subdartisy nutritionalists, and we could get patterns. And, and I could see that if I went to the gym, I felt better, which I would have really resisted against kind of information. I know, damn, I was like, really? But oh, how annoying. So, um, you know, but you can't ignore the evidence when you write it down. And I think, you know, started 
processing um, uh, information in my mind and emotions like that. And then I learned about med- meditation and did a lot of meditation for a number of years, which I did for my clinical practice, but I got an awful a lot from I never would have kind of done it you can't ignore the science behind it when you really understand it and I was learning about the science thinking unless I do an eight-week course where somebody tells me to do it for I think I was doing it for about 40 minutes a day for eight weeks and I did it with Mark Williams who brought it I think from John Kabat-Singh in America I don't know if you've heard of him do you know that Cody Uh, no I do not John Kabat-Singh he worked somewhere in America teaching people with pain and cancer about um meditation and mindfulness and then there was um a guy over in oxford university who was um a psychiatrist looking at depression and medic um depression and antidepressants and mindfulness meditation and he really thought that you know his medication would trump everything and actually it they he found that if you meditate and you take antidepressants, you recover quicker and you don't relapse because you learn to disconnect from your thoughts. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I I know that I do a bit of mindfulness, but it's like, you know, the equivalent of picking up a two kilogram weight and half-heartedly lifting it. I I know I should do it more and it it is good, but, um, and I know the point isn't to try and or, or isn't to forget everything and be in a calm state. But I do find that my mind is so busy, I'm just very, very impatient with it. And I well, think they say the busier the mind, the harder they f- that you find it, the more benefit you'll get from it. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's another thing I need to keep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's like you're working out, right? Like you got to find time to fit it in, and and yeah. uh, unfortunately, it's it's a little bit more work than just living your everyday life. But the the benefits. Uh, Speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Sarah, so basically, I mean, some of the stuff that you've worked on, meditation and going to the gym and all sorts of things. So it sounds like a general um, self-care routine. Or, or is there anything in particular that you've struggled with? I think, well, um, I suppose I went from doing CBT to being trained with Professor Paul Gilbert in CFT. And um, and then I kind of learned about myself, critic, critic, which I wasn't aware of, and really how a bit more about the neuroscience and how our brain works. And that's changed my approach to life. Like when I moved house, um, it's a couple of years ago now, it feels like two minutes ago, um, I, you know, you go through all that stress and then I'm quite conscious because I'm quite high drive and which you might have gathered from my everything I put out there. Um, so I could go at 100, you know, I've always got a project on, but I really kind of stop myself and think, well, I've got to bring in the soothing system and have a period of calm because I've toned up my threat system. Now I need to do something else. So I'm, I'm more aware of how my brain works and working with my self-critic because I didn't realise, I didn't think I was self-critical. Okay. And then I realised that I absolutely was. Um, <laughs> so was it all part of supervision or did you actually have therapy or is it the same thing? I'm not, you know, what's your experience of, of going to therapy, if any? Oh, loads of therapy, loads. <laughs> yeah, of the different types or? Yeah, I've had, I've done, I've done I did you a list. So I've had, I had counselling. So um, as a teenager, my dad was killed in a car accident and that was probably, you know, that's probably why I'm interested in therapy. Yeah. But I had um, 
counselling at that point and later on for a bereavement because I think as therapists we need to process things and I'm quite a talker and like to kind of talk things through so I had person-centred counselling I've had um I've never had CBT but I've had cognitive analytical therapy right I've had EMDR a, um, a couple of times and the last tr therapy I had just before COVID and it was kind of COVID that stopped it was IPT therapy which was developed in Manchester which interpersonal planning. Yeah it's all sorts so you've got a, a lot of experience of, of, of different types. And yeah. I see because I, obviously I, I pick up and this I haven't prepped you for this question you don't have to answer it but you're obviously a very driven person and we'll talk about all the diff various projects you've you've got going on what what is it that drives you because you seem to be really all <laughs> on doing things or should i not say that i don't know i think um i'm quite passionate about what i do I really love what i do you know so it's easy when you enjoy it, isn't it? And I suppose I think I wonder, you know, with my childhood and stuff and having to leave home quite young and I, you know, had to look after myself, didn't have much money for, for many years that I've kind of had that drive. Although yeah. when I was in nursing for a time, it was quite, you know, had the service not changed, I probably would have stayed doing that. And then I wonder if it's just threat of like going into... You know, my health not being great kind of made me think, God, I need more streams of revenue because if, as a therapist, if I'm not well, then I don't earn any money. That's scary. And scary with a backdrop of maybe not having financial security once my, my dad died. You know, so I think those things yeah. spur you on. And then I love it and get enthusiastic about everything. Yeah. Sarah, I'm I'm curious. Um, I mean, you you kind of described some trauma in your childhood and um, some difficult things to process as as you were growing up and even coming out of nursing. I, I'm curious what what led you down the CBT track, given that you had experience with all other sorts of uh, types of therapy um, that were maybe more in depth, right, deeper than CBT. I'm I'm curious what led you down that path. I think it was opportunity at the time in the NHS where I was working there was this massive um, initiative to train more um, therapists up so I was working in a management role and a job came up to go and work in what's called IAPT which is improving access to psychological treatment so there's a massive drive to train up therapists in CBT and it was the absolute buzzword in the uk it was see is cbt well known in america or is it more apt or no cbt is is the number one uh oh, used yeah number one used therapy here and i mean i have some i have some thoughts on and reasons why but i wonder if it would be valuable it, it, do you mind if i just put you on the spot for a second just have you give us a brief um idea of what cbt is and kind of the thought process i think most of our listeners Actually, I honestly, I honestly don't know. I think some of our listeners might know what CBT is, but I think a lot of them aren't necessarily in the mental health world. And so just a basic mm. understanding of, of what that what that is, I think that could be helpful. Yeah. So CBT was developed by Aaron Beck. I think, he's, he, I think he died last year and um, he was in Philadelphia. And I'm sure his background, I'm 99.9% .9 sure it was in person-centered counseling. And then he got interested in depression and working with people's thoughts and helping people kind of um, understand the patterns of the mind. So basically with CBT therapy, you've 
generally we've got kind of a background, a core profession in nursing or psychology or a mental, the mental health field or counselling. And then you get trained in um, all the research. So there's lots of academics doing research around all the anxiety and mood disorders. And we get taught that research, what are the best strategies to use. But CBT is basically what underpins it is that our thoughts impact how we feel and then what we do. So we have this pattern that becomes very automatic. And in CBT, we're really interested in shining a light on that pattern, helping people become aware of it, and then thinking what can we put in place instead. It's a very practical therapy. It's very goal-focused. You talk a lot more than in person-centered therapy or psychodynamic. It's very, very collaborative. We kind of see it as the person that's coming for the therapy has got their expertise in their mind, and I'm bringing the expertise around mood and anxiety disorders and the latest research and kind of merging those two um, two kind of brains together to come up with the answers. Lots of behavioural experiments, um, challenging negative thinking, that kind of thing. That's a great description, actually. That is, yeah, it's, it's helped me a lot because obviously we're learning a little bit about this stuff at college, but we're just touching very briefly on, on um, you know, the different things. Cody, does that cover it for you? Yeah, yeah, it, it does. It, it, and it really kind of boils down to the way we think affects the way that we feel and the way that we feel affects the way that we act. So thinking, feeling, acting. Um, fun, fun fact, uh, with CBT, I listened to an interview with the, the founder one time and he he credited his mom who used to come home from work or whatever and would be sitting at the dinner table and she would just have discussions with herself to just kind of process her day. And that was kind of his first exposure to let me let me think about what I'm thinking, right? Let me let me track this and, and let me do that. So he kind of credited her with that. And so I thought that was fascinating. But it uh, yeah, that was a great description. What modality are you trained in, Cody? Yeah, I consider myself um, a generalist, right? So I don't have uh, any specialties uh, specifically. I, I do obviously do CBT because like I said, that's the number one thing here in, in America as well. But I do love ACT. Uh, ACT has really grown on me quite a bit lately. And for anybody listening, ACT is um, has aspects of CBT, but it incorporates a lot more mindfulness and it, it looks at your thoughts a little bit differently than CBT is, but still the same idea of, of becoming aware of your thoughts. Um, I've, I've found aspects of narrative therapy that I really love and I jump into to that a little bit. Um, mm. so yeah, yeah, I would kind of a, take a generalist approach depending on where I feel like my client is and what they might need at that time. That's nice. Yeah. I'm interested as well, Sarah, because you do EMDR and, uh, CFT and I wondered about it also, uh, how to describe those for, for people that are listening because they're just letters. <laughs> they're not just letters. So again, um, well, EMDR, I it came into the NICE guidelines in the UK, so it had enough research behind it to um, kind of be 
the standardised treatment for trauma along with CBT. But CBT takes a lot of time. And um, I think it's one of the other reasons why I went into private practice because the NHS just wouldn't fund me doing the things that I wanted to do. So I um, went on the training course for EMDR. And I think you said in in the um, notes that you were like, is it as good as what it sounds? Well, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll just jump in actually and say that I did, I've read most of a a book on, on EMDR and it's by somebody called is it Francine Shapiro? Shapiro. I've got her name yeah. completely wrong. Um, it's somewhere in my notes. And I've listened to t- two thirds of this book. And you see, this this is this is classic of my personality in a way, which I like to get things done. I like to get tasks mm-hmm. done. And I thought, oh, EMDR. This yeah, it sounds too good to be true because it feels like it's quite quick for some people, and, and they might not necessarily have to go into depth. Um, talking mm. about things, etc. So, yeah, maybe, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about it. So EMDR is relatively new. It's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it's basically, um, it's the evidence base is for trauma, but it's likely to come in if they do the research around anxiety, um, bereavement, um, addictions, there's some evidence for OCD as well, though I haven't found it particularly useful for OCD. And it's it's helping people in CBT, what works for trauma is kind of what happens in a trauma is that you're exposed to a traumatic event and it's not just war zones, it's kind of a time where you're emotionally overwhelmed or you you're scared for your life or somebody else's or if you just slip and have a scary thought people can have post-traumatic stress from that mm-hmm. and cortisol floods the brain it affects the part of the brain called the hippocampus which kind of freezes stuff in time kind of freezes yeah. the memory so it affects how the memory is processed so if you meet somebody in your clinical world and say to them that the trauma you talk about does it feel like it happened just yesterday or 10 years ago they'll say it's really vivid it feels like it just happened yesterday so that's the memory but they're also holding this um, somatically in their body as well so we hold trauma in all our senses Um, so it's kind of frozen in time it's not been processed so we get people to do kind of reliving while they do eye movements mm-hmm. and you kind of it's kind of like inducing a bit of a flashback and they yeah. have one foot in reality one foot in um kind of the the trauma and when they do the eye movements it's like they're reliving it and um that they either think it overwhelms the working memory or it's inducing rapid eye movement sleep but during the day so um when we sleep at night when your eyes are going side to side which is REM sleep you are processing information you're consolidating memories and it's doing that and for some people it is well a lot of people it's very very transformative Mm. to the point where sometimes people might have struggled with something for a very long time they'll sit in front of me for an hour i'll do emdr and it's completely they don't have the trauma anymore and then you have to work with the the kind of grief or the shock of that so mm. that's kind of a warning really or and mm. some you know it doesn't work for not everything works for everybody cbt isn't a one fixed wonder and neither is emdr but something that comes back to me actually from reading the book and because uh, i don't want to give people the wrong impression about emdr um and although you can have rapid um positive results through a session 
a lot of the book talked about there's there's a precursor to that which is getting to know the client and a sort of an element of person-centered therapy i guess yeah. to, to really work towards the point and I'm, I'm supposing well obviously you need to build up tra- trust with the therapist and all that mm. kind of it isn't just a uh, uh, you know, a five-minute job, is it? No, no, no. You do, with it, as with all therapies, you do a really thorough assessment and, you know, and take it from there. Yeah, and yeah. you're also a compassion-focused therapist as well. <laughs> because, yeah, because you, you're, you've got so many things going on, you get another one in. <laughs> yeah, which is probably, I'm probably more CFT than anything else, really. No, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, Sarah, I, I would love to hear more about the the compassion focused therapy and mm-hmm. and maybe what maybe what got you into that. I'm 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 curious if your if your history has led you down that compassion focus area and why you've chosen that one to be your main focus. I think um, when I trained as a CBT therapist, I don't know if it's the same in America. It sounds like it's as popular over there that you think that you've got these wizardry skills that you're going to go out. And um, when I was doing my training, that I had a caseload of eight clients, and I'd I'd be practicing my CBT skills on somebody with depression that had been handpicked for me as they would be in a research trial so they had no trauma like they just had depression or they just had panic attacks and they'd been having panic attacks for six months and they were going to see me and I was going to talk them through this protocol and they got better so I thought I was a wizard and I went (laughs) into a very deprived area in Manchester and never did one of those clients walk through my door again (laughs) they had really complicated huge trauma you know I, don't, I think it was many years ago now but one of the um first people i worked with had been involved in the lockerbie air disaster that was my first trauma case i was like oh my gosh you yeah. know it was just so i was like oh my god i am not the wizard i thought i'd trained up to be and that got me looking about what is around and at the time um CFT was just kind of blossoming and they this compassionate mind foundation that was developed and um by Professor Paul Gilbert and Mary Welford and Deborah Lee and Chris Irons was just kind of building up and they did their first conference and I went to that in Manchester and was just blown blown away. And Professor Gilbert, he he's no he did a lot of work with Aaron Beck and he was a CBT therapist and he, Professor Gilbert is, you know, his mind is very, very impressive. He's um, he's done a lot of psychoanalytical therapy as well. And he, while he was working as a CBT therapist, he became very interested in why, although we've got the research for CBT, some people don't do that well. And what, so he did research around that and found that if you are very highly self-critical or have a lot of shame, then you we can help you change the way you think about things. But if your internal relationship with yourself and your internal voice is very negative, it's like walking around with a bully. So you've got to shift that. And that's, mm. you know, when people aren't doing that well with CBT, it's often if you say to people, and it, generally if you say to people, how are you quite self-critical they would say yes it underpins a lot of anxiety and depression and from that he started to develop compassion focused therapy but also help us 
understand our CBT therapist a bit about how the brain works and has come up with emo an emotional regulation system, which means that I can teach clients about how their brain works and they go, well, that's me. It's not my fault. We all have tricky brains. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to me that the sort of the, the step on or the advancement, if you like, from CBT to compassion focused therapy, because well, I can only speak for myself really, but I'm I'm definitely the sort of tricky um, client that would almost I can't help but rebel against something like CBT. But if you were mm. to tell me, like you know, when you get into this state, you you might need to bring this into mind and try altering your state of mind kind of thing. I, I can feel myself fighting against it now <laughs> as I'm talking mm -hmm. about it. I don't think it would suit me, but you're saying that this compassion-focused therapy sort of builds on some of those elements? Yeah, I got... it's a, yes, and it's all about fears, blocks and re resistance and it's very rooted in evolutionary psychology, so how we've developed as a species and, you know, and and it's integrated with, um, it's integrated Buddhist philosophy as well that we're, oh. we're kind of born, flourish and decay and we've kind of, you know, We've got to kind of become open our eyes to that tragedy mm. and it incorporates a lot of mindfulness as kind of one of the founding bases of from you know if you're in a very threat-based mind you can't um it's difficult to kind of go into the soothing system have relationships with people have that connection and that's fundamentally what we need is connection and relationships and, and the relationship we have with ourselves is one of the bases of that that makes me want yeah. to ask you the question that you won't be able to answer which is why are humans so tricky <laughs> well we have two parts of our brain we have we have um an um, kind of the prefrontal cortex which is our logical thinking part of our mind and that makes us different from kind of most species in that we have the ability to think forwards and backwards and then we have the emotion emotional part of our brain and it's kind of those two brains aren't very well connected mm. so when my emotions come up you know if i was being if a zebra's being chased by a lion as a zebra runs if the lion goes away a zebra just can settle down and go into soothing mm. but i would be thinking what if it came back what if i got it got me you know so i can keep the that threat going so our minds make us amazing but they also you know mean that we're more likely to have depression we mm. anxiety and and we caught we kind of got we're living with out of our minds are out of date for the worlds we live in today yes. yeah we're very disconnected we don't do well like that we don't we should live in tribes so we're, we're walking around with kind of a database that's not programmed very well and we don't understand it we're never taught about it which is bizarre you know mm. this is what i'm picking up on as uh, the, the more that i learn about it it's almost like i get the impression that the, the school of thought is that we've advanced too quickly in some ways with technology and mm. lifestyle um and our brains are they sort of they're still evolving they haven't caught up there's a video so you might have seen this video um i'm going to do a bad job of explaining it but i think it was a gazelle being stalked by a lion or something like this yeah 
and um, in the end, it, it got he was traumatized, but it, it got away, and it lay down on the floor, and and it started shaking, and its eyes started moving about, and, and it did that for maybe a minute or two, and then it settled, and it got up, and it walked away. Um, and this guy, he was, it's a video on YouTube, but he was explaining that that was the animal dealing with trauma. Um, it's getting rid of the adrenaline. That's why and, we shake. We, yeah. yeah. And he also t- talked about a story where I think a friend of his had, had a, some sort of traffic accident or something, and he got into the back of an ambulance and started shaking, and the adrenaline uh, was going. And the paramedic tried to inject him with something, and he and he stopped him because he said, "That's my, you know, that's my natural mm. way of working out trauma." Mm. And, so obviously I'm not suggesting we do that if we get knocked over by a car <laughs> do what the ambulance man says <laughs> do what Rich does <laughs> but it's all it's really interesting that just, just how everything's connected together Have you, do you, are you familiar with Gabor Mate at all? Yes, yeah, very familiar, yeah. I don't know whether it's him who has the book, is it The, the Body Keeps the Score is that? Oh my god, yeah and the, yeah, The Body Keeps the Score Yeah, that's uh, Vander... Kirk oh yeah, the... it's Vander um, right, Vessel I've... Ben Van yeah. Vessel Van der It's a hard enough name we have to think of it, but yes, it's that's who writes that book. Yeah, yeah. so he yeah. Gabor Mate wrote um, when the body says no, and I literally ah. read read that one Christmas. I thought I was going to die. I was so scared. I, I took it to clinical supervision. I was yeah. like, <laughs> every cell in my, my body is listening to everything I say, and why it says right bad stuff to myself. Oh my gosh, terrifying. Have you read that? I haven't really? read it. I've just got such a, a huge uh, load of books I want to read, but I, I watched a good uh, YouTube video with Gabor Mate uh, maybe a week or so ago and mm. just this whole body mind connection. And you talking earlier in the episode about your, was it celiacs? You said you, you got diagnosed yeah. with various physical things. And I'm just really interested in this whole. Um, you know what happens to you and, and trauma that you suffer the way it can manifest as, as illness and yeah I've got all really the autoimmune things if you talk about this in public with, with friends and family at the moment it, you're still at the point where you just sound like a bit of a nutcase mm. don't you think for now what do you think <laughs> <laughs> yeah like I think we I think like we said earlier we all um we all have our own problems. We all we all sound like a nutcase when we actually are willing to be vulnerable enough to show those things. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's like uh, my my uh, my mum had a knee replacement um, maybe two years ago, and everything is healed as it should. So if, if you look at it physically, everything's good and she can walk and and everything. But she's still in a lot of pain, and I tentatively suggested that it might be in the mind. And obviously there was a little bit of defense around that. And it's very difficult to say because you're not saying to somebody it doesn't exist. Um, you know, it, it does exist, but there might be more to it than the physical injury. I've done EMDR a few times where people have come to me and they are the type of person that would push down emotions or, or difficulty. And they've gone through all the kind of medical tests and it, it, there's nothing and the, I worked with one guy, he had a, a horrendous itching that was really debilitating. And that was grief. As soon as we did the MDR, his, yeah. his granddad came up, he grieved and the itching went away. It was just like, 
Yeah. I love I love hearing stories like that and, and they're also scary. Sarah, I'm curious. I- I'm not trained in the MDR myself, but like I said, it's it has it's grown here in America. I think it, it in some ways, even though CBT is the the primary thing here, EMDR kind of feels like it's the flavor of the month, so to speak. Yeah. Like it, it's growing and everybody's talking about it and excited about it. One of the things that comes up for me when people talk about EMDR is I, I know that it does really good trauma work, but mm-hmm. as, once they once you've been re-exposed to that trauma and, and can kind of handle it again in, in a more manageable way, there's extra pieces that are left like identity concerns and and just general trust issues of past triggers like being in the dark or being alone or whatever that EMDR, I've been told, doesn't necessarily handle, right? Um, what, what are your thoughts on on once you can kind of process that trauma and it no longer is impacting you as strongly as it was, addressing all of those extra pieces that come with somebody who has been traumatized throughout yeah, their life. I'm really glad that I did EMDR when I was, I'd had all the experience as a mental health nurse. I'd done lots of trauma work. I knew how to work with it within CBT. And the, one of the best books I've ever read, I've got, I've got some books out just in case, but it's Deborah Lee's kind of book on trauma. Um, and she would do kind of eight weeks of stabilization with anybody before doing any kind of trauma work. But I think, you know, one of the, th- as you were talking then, one of the things that comes to mind is sometimes I'll work with people that have had a relative that have had, has had a difficult death and they've seen them at the end and it's it's been difficult and they're left with that image. Mm-hmm. So we'll do EMDR to that image and that image will fade and then what can come up is the natural process of grieving. So it's often some people, they can't grieve because they're stuck with a really traumatic image. You can settle that image down and then they start grieving. And then, so in, you can do EMDR, EMDR to the grief, but there's still the natural mm. processing of grief that has to it, happen. It sounds to me like you're saying that there's almost your unblocking something and then, you, and then a natural process is then... Yeah. In place as a result of that yeah and then you can kind of you reevaluate and reassess and yeah i think there's some therapy because it's such a wonder thing there's some therapists that think everything's trauma just do emdr go in hard and just do emdr for everything everything's yeah. underlying is trauma i wouldn't necessarily i i don't agree with that i think we're complicated mm-hmm. and we need different approaches i'm really interested to hear as well that you you'd like the fact that you had all this experience first of, of therapy and, yeah into therapy and um and it's it's been an addition for you rather than the initial i would have been very worried yeah to work with emdr with no background i think i would have got messed up a few times and i think you know you have to kind of have it yourself i think and then um i've had it a couple of times and uh, you know i think you need the experience of having it because it's so strange, mm. yeah. I mean, for all our listeners, it, it's obviously I'm getting mindful of, of the time here on the podcast, but because I, I was going to try and sum up uh, the whole therapy industry, of course, like <laughs> so, there's so many different types, isn't there? And obviously a lot of our listeners are, are here because they're interested in finding out about whether therapy is something for them. Um, I don't know whether you've got any brief words of, of wisdom about where people should look, and I guess it's different in the US as well. So, Cody, you might want to come in on this as well. Do you want to start, Cody? 
Yeah. So, yeah. Rich, your question is just where should people look if they want to if they yeah, want to find maybe. a therapist? Um, I mean, this is not the greatest answer, but honestly, I think over here the best way is is a Google search. Um, that's not that great of an answer, but I don't. We like I said earlier in the episode, we don't really have anything that connects us, like the NHS or anything. Where all the every state you're in is different, and everything is just there's nothing that connects anything at all. And I think it's something like ninety percent of mental health agencies are probably private practice over here. Um, and then there are some some public ones that might be funded through some government programs. But um, people over here don't qualify those unless they almost make almost no money at all, unfortunately. And then once you hit that threshold of money, then you have to go private practice. Um, so we don't have anything that really connects us. Unfortunately, Google search is probably the best or going through whoever your private insurance uh, to, to help finding, finding yeah. people over here. Yeah, I know. I've, I've, we, we've had this question before and I tried to answer, uh, give an answer for the UK and failed miserably. So uh, <laughs> perhaps you could tell us where, I mean, I, I, what I suggested was that the NHS is generally the first port of call, but unfortunately they're just so under-resourced that <laughs> really going to get very far with that it's 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 really shocking it's like i mean it's better depending where you live but 12 to 18 months i work with a therapist that works in ireland and it's i think a few years before you could see a therapist so yeah it's really really tricky i think if i think about the clients that come to see me because we've got social media and we can do podcasts and blogs and stuff like that there will be p you know you can really research your therapist now i think the ones the people that come to see me that i think there's lots we can do to help clients kind of start that therapeutic relationship before they even come to the therapy door by sharing kind of information and stuff and i think if you ask around ask friends that you trust but what we know is that no matter what modality your therapist is trained in it's a lot to do with the connection you have with a therapist so finding therapy a therapist that you really feel like you connect with so some people i met last week a lady came in and she said a friend had given her two websites to look at and she just went she looks all right and i'm sure there's loads that go that other one looks all right i don't see but it's like it's having that kind of connection and phoning therapists up and speaking to them and and just you'll get a feel and then if it's not right we're never offended no therapist can be right for everybody so when you're having sorry Cody go on yeah I was just gonna Sarah when you're having somebody new come in um how do you generally decide which modality you want to look at and do do you want to look at you know EMDR or CBT or CFT like how how is that that you're deciding what is what is that like for you and the client I think I think I'm naturally more CFT now. I think that's kind of underpins everything I do. But if somebody comes in with panic attacks, then I'd obviously CBT is going to be the right protocol. I think I do a thorough assessment and we always get the goals of what the client wants to work on. So sometimes, you know, because of what I do and who I am, I want to do the longer piece of work, maybe go in depth with people. But somebody might say, actually, I don't want to talk about the past. I just, I've got panic attacks and I want to work in the here and now. So then that would be CBT. And generally, most people don't know about EMDR or CFT, really. So I will say that I integrate CFT into my practice and I probably can't pull the two apart now. And then often I'll be thinking EMDR might be good for this as well. 
well or, or part yeah. of it and I'll share it and some people go, that's weird, no thanks. <laughs> and, uh, and some people give it a go. Yeah. Would it be fair to say then for for anybody listening that's thinking that they might like to, to go to therapy is perhaps not get too bogged down in these different terminologies, modalities uh, and really just find somebody that you're comfortable mm. with? Yeah, and I think if you, you know, in the initial conversations or emails, if you say, I'm struggling with this, you know, um, they then the, most therapists can say that's what I work with. Like, I don't work with eating disorders really in private practice because I think, um, yeah, I do sometimes, but it's generally you need a team around you. That's the best way to work with somebody because of the nutritional support and the health support. So, you know, if you kind of say, if you have an idea of what your goals are, the most therapists can say that is completely you know my bag or I don't work in that area but I know some other therapists and we can refer on good mm. advice um before we finish up then Sarah we, we wanted to ask you quickly because you're as well as everything else we've discussed you're a nearly published author yeah no I hope so yeah unless well, I, I've, just, well, I've just handed it in it came straight back at me like two yeah. days later so no I, I think I think I think there's a contract they have to publish it with the rest. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it strikes me as an extremely brave thing to do. And we were just wondering, you know, how has that process been and, and, and what what has it brought up for you writing a book? Oh, gosh, it's, I don't know. I'm just, I think I'm blinded. I need some EMDR after it. <laughs> I think I, I, I broke it. I have an amazing clinical supervision. I saw your question on this and I thought, God, did I have self-doubt? I absolutely did have lots of self-doubt. But I think I, I think being in private practice and over the years, I've got very good at having um, really good support around me. And I have an amazing clinical supervision, supervisor, Dr. Mary Welford, who's um, she's done a lot of work in the field of compassion and around confidence and stuff, which has helped. And um, she'd put me forward a while ago to write a book chapter. And I was like, I can't do, and write a book chapter, 3,000 words, overwhelmed, made a right meal out of it. Okay, hang on. So so what was that for exactly? It wasn't for a book. It was just a, a, an opportunity to... It was, some books are edited Well, they'll get um, a load of authors to do a chapter each. Oh, so right. I've just done another chapter, So, which I think it's a mammoth job to, you know, to do an edited book. So it was to do a chapter, um, digital... Um, digital therapy was um, oh my god, I can't even. But it's by Dr. Hannah Wilson, and it was um CBT online basically, and it was in COVID. So I wrote that chapter, and Mary said, "No, you can do it. You can do it." So I I did that, mm. and I really enjoyed the process of it. And then um, I, you know, was approached by because of the blogs that I write to do a book. And I had a couple of ideas and it was, you know, when I started out in private practice, there was just no information there at mm -hmm. all. So I've done lots of support helping other therapists build up their private practice. And so I have a lot of material around it. So I thought I'd just 
put the blog. I'll just write a book. I just yeah. write a book. And then I've chunked it down. I've got, I had help with a copywriter and my best friend is a school teacher and has perfectionism issues. So she's read every single word I've written. Oh, so it's about having people around you that can help you do what you want to do, I think. And I should just tell our listeners, and hopefully I've got this right. So the book is is a guide in some sense about how you would go about setting up in private yeah. The um, Therapist Guide to Private Practice, yes, Building a Values-Based Business, so incorporating values. And, and, where, and when is this book coming out or is that? We think it'll be, well, there's um, a big conference in Manchester, the BABC conference. It'd be nice to have it on the shelves for that conference. So that's in July, so hopefully June. There's a bit of a backlog. So. Mm. I love. I love that you just said I got approached to write a book. I, I, I get that request one day. <laughs> well, you your writing's lovely. It's really nice. I really, you do write very well. But it's getting your writing out there, and and they're always looking um, for books because mm. it's a nightmare. Not many people choose to do it. I know the, the the tiny bits of writing I do on Substack that is extremely time consuming and. Um, I just I can't fathom how one would actually write a book because it takes me about a week to write three paragraphs. <laughs> but that gets a lot quicker the more you do it, and there is something very nice about I can't I mean about being able to opt out of life and not having to do. I'm like I can't do that. I'm writing a book and just shutting yourself in your office for the whole day and nobody can disturb you it's quite addictive i'm like i've got no excuse now i have to re-engage in family events things that i don't want to so what what we're hearing is this is just the first of a few oh i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't think so no <laughs> well, i'll be excited to to see it when it when it comes out hopefully i'll be able to are is it gonna is there gonna be a digital copy or Yes, yeah, I think there will be a digital copy. I'm doing all the alt text for it and stuff and for, for a digital version, so it sounds like a will be, yeah. That would be great. So the other things then, so Sarah, you've got the book coming out, you've got your YouTube channel, which do you want to just remind us what your YouTube channel is? It is, I think it's either my name, which is Sarah D. Reese. I'm sure that would find it, or Therapist Corner. I think it's under Sarah Reese. And there I share um, lots of therapist spotlights, which we've done one, Rich, haven't we? And maybe we should do yeah. one, Cody, I'll get you on. Yeah, and we'll be just, fun. Yeah, just share therapist journeys into private practice and the yeah. work they do. And we should mention Substack as well, so, which yeah. is where originally, well, Sarah actually encouraged me. So Sarah's fault that I'm on uh, Substack, <laughs> blithering away at people. Um, but you can find, <laughs> I, I think you probably just type at Sarah D. Reese. And therapist Corner. Therapist Corner. And you'll yeah. Absolutely. Can I ask, how did you find um, Ask the Therapist, the podcast? Was that just searching? Yeah. Um, I actually. Is that how you found me? Yeah. I actually just put, when I started at counselling college, I um, put into Spotify, I put therapy and a few different Uh, therapy podcasts came up and yours was one of them. Brilliant. Very good. Uh, yeah, this was interesting, and and you well, obviously you talked to lots of different therapists, so it was a nice, quick, almost learning tool for me to hear about different therapists and different modalities yeah. and things. Obviously, I'm completely new to the whole thing, um, and it turned out that we because we actually don't live that far away from each other either. Okay, yeah. For our American <laughs> audience, uh, me and Sarah are in the, the 
the grim northern part of uh, England, which actually yeah. Sarah's in a nicer part than me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and Cody, my question for you, because I should be allowed definitely one question, yes, yeah, is yes, how, did you, how did you find Substack? Because there's not many therapists on Substack. How did that journey come back? Yeah, I... Um... <clears throat> I was on. Uh, I'm on Twitter just as just as a my own personal Twitter and mostly sports. But um, I, I started I started just writing random things on Twitter, different posts of you know how to handle mental health or different coping skills that people could learn or mm. just general advice of, of things. And it's it's not the greatest platform to to be sharing mental health stuff. Like I mean, I think a lot of people need it on there yeah. Yeah. but it's it's yeah. not well received right it's it's mm -hmm. uh it's very sports oriented or news oriented and, and there's just a lot of negativity on there and yeah. i have a friend who um who suggested that i start writing on substack he followed a few other people not therapists just other people on substack and said hey you should give this a try so i i just looked into it and said all right well why not and jumped on it and um i've never been a huge writer and so part of me loved it and part of mm -hmm. me didn't, um, a little bit of both. Uh, but over over a little while, I started building up a, up a couple followers here and there, nothing that got too big. And and then eventually uh, Rich and I came in contact and that's when this was born, so. Fantastic, thank you for sharing. And thank you for yeah. having me on. Yeah, thanks, I really appreciate it. And I, and I appreciate you uh, being a a guinea pig for me to try and ask. I don't know, but I think I asked one of my questions. But anyway, we had a good chat. So. <laughs> really They're very good questions. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can finish. But I just want to thank everybody for for listening. Uh, and Sarah, thanks for coming on. This is the first time you and I have met, so mm -hmm. I appreciate you coming on. It was it was wonderful to talk, and uh, we'll just talk to everybody next episode. Bye.